All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Park Church Podcast. I'm your host, James Lapine, and on this show, I talk with well-known authors, thinkers, and speakers about uh, faith and uh, day-to-day life and how those two things intersect. So this month on the show, we have Jamar Tisby, who is the co-founder of the Reformed African American Network. You can find that at uh, raanetwork.org. Uh, he is also the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, he is also a PhD student in history. Um, so if you are interested in learning more about uh, education, um, about white supremacy, about uh, the church's role in propping that up, and then uh, what we can do about it today, uh, then I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. Jamar is... Uh, incredibly intelligent, incredibly thoughtful. Uh, We had a lot of fun talking and just uh, uh, thinking through these things together. So I think you'll enjoy the interview and uh, we'll go ahead and get right into it now. All right. Hey, Jamar, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and sorry for all the trouble getting this set up. That's that's on me, but whenever we have technical difficulties on our other podcast, uh, we just say it must be really good. <laughs> I think it'll be, yeah, yeah, we'll make it worth the wait for everybody. Um, <laughs> you spoke of your other podcast, which is uh, Pass the Mic, which I'm assuming is a Beastie Boys reference. Is that right? <laughs> it was not intentionally a Beastie Boys reference. We thought about that, but figured enough time had passed that maybe we could take up the name. <laughs> and yet we were wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> You're reclaiming it. I like that. Um, that's right. Okay, so so you are the co-host of Pass the Mic. You've also uh, co-founded the Reformed African American Network, and you're a, a PhD student in history. Um, for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, can you just give us an abbreviated uh, uh, story? Tell us about your life. Sure. I grew up in the Midwest and was baptized in high school, just kind of a typical evangelical church setting. And it stuck, thank thank God. And so um, I got involved in Christian ministry at, at the youth group in my high school. Um, and then while I was in high school, rather, then went to college and uh, started learning more about theology, specifically Reformed theology. And then after uh, college, I joined Teach for America, which is a two-year teaching program, and they place... Um, fresh, young, idealistic college grads in schools all over the country and throw you in the deep end and say, hope you survive. Um, <laughs> no, they, they provide a little more support than that. But it was an intense uh, time. So I taught for four years down in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, which is where I still am, and uh, then went went away for a year for seminary in God's inscrutable plan. He brought me back to the Delta, and so I served as a principal at uh, the same school where I had been teaching before and did that for three years, then finished up my MDiv at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, and apparently I just can't get enough of school, and now I am in a PhD (laughs) program in history at the University of Mississippi. Gotcha. Okay. And um, uh, my younger brother, John, did Teach for America and uh, that has actually led him to, he's going to be the principal of a school in North Tulsa, or he is, they've started nice. now. So I know a little bit oh, of that. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's doing great work with a a, a preparatory school called Crossover there. Um, yeah. So yeah, I worked at a school as well, public charter school, and just a big plug for anybody who for whom education might even be a little bit on the radar. Take a deep dive, go in and explore it. See if it's if it's for you. Um, there's a dire dire need, and it's such important work. So always encouraged to hear about other educators. Yes, absolutely agree with that. And I've I've only learned more from him uh, as he's gone through that over the past couple of years. But I'm interested just in what you learn from that experience. Uh, I'm actually from Arkansas, uh, but I'm from wow. cent- yeah Central Arkansas, so I, I know a little bit about um, the reality of of just the brokenness in our school system particularly in Arkansas and Mississippi. But can you tell us a little bit about what you learned over your years there? Sure. The place is really important. So the Delta is, um, an, an author, a historian called it the most Southern place on earth. <laughs> and so I always describe it as the way the rest of the country looks at the South. That's the way the South looks at the Delta. Um, mm. You know, just stereotypes, just backwards, slow-moving uh, racist, all of those negative stereotypes are there, and some are true. Um, the the Delta in both Arkansas and Mississippi is the most impoverished and has the highest percentage of African Americans in, in any part of the state. Mm. And that's part of a legacy. Uh, this is cotton country, and so my daily commute, I'm driving past cotton fields, and uh, as we record this, we're probably just two, three weeks away, uh, if that, from the cotton fields blooming and, and harvest coming up. And uh, now it's all done by machines, of course, but before it was done by hand. And so you have race-based chattel slavery, which then morphed into sharecropping, which then led to generational poverty and, and a lot of the systemic effects that you see to this day. And so part of what I learned as a, as a teacher down here was simply from being in the midst of such deep-rooted historical poverty and learning what that means, Um, learning how difficult it is it can be to get hold of a parent whose phone number is constantly changing because one phone gets cut off, they get another one, Uh, addresses the same way, kids functionally homeless where they're not staying in any particular place for more than two, three days at a time, all of those things combined with just the the reason why it's here, uh, because it's not the people. It's not because they're lazy. You have folks working two and three jobs, raising multiple kids and getting their kids to school on time and doing everything they can uh, to support their family. But because of a legacy of inequality, we have the reality we do now. And so I think it just sparked a fire in me to to A, become more aware of these issues and B, try in some small way to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really is uh, heartbreaking to see. Um, so you do four years as a teacher there and then decide seminaries the next step. Can you tell me how that decision happened? You know, it, it was weird as I think back on it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a new decision. I, I, I had known since high school I wanted to go to seminary, which is odd because I I mean, I was a high schooler. Um, <laughs> I had other things to think about. But it, it just always seemed to make sense to me that I would go 
and get some formal training in theology because at that point I thought I would be a pastor. Um, God has led me in some different directions. That's still open, but um, the seminary degree for sure was, I thought, just just made sense to do. And so after several years of teaching, it just seemed like the right time. Um, and so I started at RTS in Orlando, actually, and that was great. That gave me a little bit of a break from the intensity, the mm. just day-in, day-out intensity of teaching in a low-income area and helped me get some perspective, but it just so happened that um, an opening came up at my old school. As, as our schools were expanding, the old principal, he had to become the superintendent, and so that left a vacancy, and I was like, well... Maybe I can do something there. So I wasn't quite done with the Delta, and the Delta wasn't done with me. But I knew, um, I always knew I wanted to somehow bring my faith into this work that I was doing, um, you know, interacting with the students that I did and their parents. I wanted to be able to speak from an informed perspective mm. about Christianity. And so it was all connected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then... Uh, moving into this PhD in history, uh, it, it seems like you have a particular calling and gift uh, to help us uh, see what's happened uh, in the past and how that it should inform uh, how we deal with the present, uh, particularly as it as it uh, deals with Christianity and uh, racism and white supremacy. And so, was was this PhD, sorry, PhD, just the next step? into what seems to be a, a life calling? Is that a fair question? Yes, yes. And it, this part was unexpected. So I always knew I'd go to seminary. I did not always think I would start um, pursuing a PhD. And I have many miles to go before I sleep, but um, <laughs> we're, we're in the middle of it. And so that really came about, I'll tell you what, what sparked it. Uh, it was two things. One, my wife told me it was a good idea. And so... It was basically a done deal at that point. <laughs> um, our spouses often know us better than we know ourselves. Yes. And so as soon as she said that, it, it, it kind of clarified some things for me. But I really got even more motivation uh, around the events of, of Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, when, when Mike Brown was killed by, by Officer Darren Wilson and all the controversy that was surrounding that, as those events were unfolding – and I, like many others, were trying to make sense of it. What I found most helpful was the content that historians were putting out there. Hmm. Because history is simply context. And so what historians were, were, were doing for me was giving context to how this community of Ferguson came about. Uh, why were the, why was the relationship between police and the community members so tense? Where had we seen these kinds of things occur before? Why was the African-American community so upset? Why did others react so differently? Mm -hmm. And as I was asking those questions and looking for those answers, it was historians who were able to bring those, those, that, those facts and those events and that, that history to light. So I said, um, well, if it was so helpful to me, maybe it'll be helpful to others. So I just kind of I took a class. Um, down at Jackson State University under a phenomenal professor and scholar, Robbie Luckett, who runs the Wa Margaret Walker Alexander Center down there, and just lit a fire. I knew, I, I mean, that was the only class I ever legitimately read ahead for, and I finished <laughs> the books before the due date. And uh, I was like, well, 
that's a good sign. <laughs> is the fire still burning? Absolutely, it is. Good. I mean, um, my wife reminds me I've got to I've got to switch up my reading every now and again because it's it's tough to tell what's 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 for school and what's pleasure reading because mm. it's it's all on the same avenue for me. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so important, right? Like how we uh, it, getting history right and making sure that it's properly told is is the best way to understand how to move forward. Um, and so in an era of social media and fake news, it's very important that we, <laughs> that we hold on to the facts of, of what's actually happened here. So, um, yeah. And with the, the Confederate monument, um, controversies yes. that are going on all around the country. I mean, it's, it's a heyday for historians mm. because all of this has a context and there have been many, many articles out by now that show that when these monuments went up, it, it, it wasn't around the Civil War. It wasn't right after uh, to commemorate these these soldiers and generals. It was in the ebb and flow of the Jim Crow era and of white supremacy in our nation. And these became icons of mm. white supremacy. Mm. And so, you know, if you know the history, though, you can start to understand what these monuments really represent in spite of some of the rhetoric that goes around about, about what people want them to say. Right. Right. Yeah. I think I watched the vice news documentary. I don't know if you've seen that. I don't think I have. Okay. Well it's, it's terrifying and, and very sad. Um, but also very eye opening. And just to hear a, a re longtime residents resident of Charlottesville say, we've had this statue staring down at us <laughs> for decades for almost you know, for, for nearly hundreds of years now um influencing our culture and shaping the way that our daily lives are lived i mean uh yeah th the rhetoric would try to explain otherwise so it's really important that we tell it how it is and i appreciate you and and your co-host uh tyler burns talking about it and and um and not mincing words and and speaking the truth so thank you for that um i well, want there to are just so many yeah go go, go, go ahead no you're good I'm just saying there's so many areas as Christians that 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 pertain to the church where it's helpful to know our history. Yes. Um, one of one of the, the most important talks I think I, I did was called The Fierce Urgency of Now Christian Complicity with Racism and the Imperative for Immediate Action. Mm. Long title. But <laughs> it, it was trying to get at what studying history had done to me. Yeah. So I had always been interested in these issues of race relations within the church because they affected me personally. But as I started studying history, I started to see that it, it the, the church wasn't just like this raft floating along the river of white supremacy. Mm. In many ways, it was creating the current. Uh, there are distinct points over and over and over again throughout the history of the nation where Christian churches made deliberate, intentional decisions that perpetuated uh, racial inequality. And and so just to give an example, the one that always sticks with me is back in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which is a political body, but it was made up of Anglican white men. You sort of had to be in the church to be you know, a prominent citizen at that time. Mm -hmm. They made a law that said baptism will not free your slaves. And that was a 
an important decision because you had missionaries coming over from Western Europe who wanted to evangelize the slaves. You had slave owners who said, no, 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 if you, if you teach them the Christian gospel, they'll start to have all these ideas about equality and dignity, and they're not going to want to work for us anymore. Right. And so there was this back and forth and, and until they passed this law that says, hey, slave owners, calm down. Uh, you can get them baptized, get them saved because we care about their souls. But it's not going to affect their bodily bondage. Yeah. And this gets perpetuated, you know, and reinforced by the church throughout the century. So we got to know that history. If we're going to respond to racism and white supremacy with the urgency it requires. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If we if we teach them about the fact that uh, God actually freed slaves from Egypt when he was redeeming Israel. <laughs> right. Good <laughs> that might be uh might be eye opening to them. I mean, um, that that was perfect actually. My next question was just to, to tell you we are a church here in Denver that is at least ninety percent white. We're longing to grow in self awareness and, and to uh, learn about the urgency of the now and, and what we can do. Um, so I was hoping for a little bit of a history lesson, and that's a good intro. I would recommend that everyone listen to the talk that you've uh, referenced. It's it's uh, breathtaking. It's eye-opening. It's very convicting, um, and that's that's available as a bonus podcast on your on your feed, that's right? right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So check that out there on on Pass the Mic. Um, any other resources that come to mind that that help us see this more clearly? I've got a blog series, a three-part blog series on the Reformed African American Network, raanetwork.org. And it's called uh, The Image of God in the African-American Experience. And what I'm trying to unpack there, I go from basically uh, colonial era up to the present, very briefly, obviously. But what I'm trying to unpack there is uh, the, the particular ways the image of God has been defaced in people of African descent because of racism in America. And so, obviously, I, I, I explore the the doctrine of the image of God as a as a biblical teaching and how that pertains. But then I, I I also walk through the ways that that has not been honored historically, and then the way folks responded, the way African Americans have tried to recover some of that dignity. And so, there's that three part blog series, the image of God and the African American experience. The first book I always recommend for for these kinds of topics is Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Okay. Uh, have you read that one? I haven't. You're, you're going to love it. You're going to be. It's, it's going to put words to so many of the dynamics that we see. What I like about it is it diagnoses the problem. It mm. starts with the question of why are our churches segregated racially mm. uh, today? Mm. And then uh, there are two sociologists, so they, they explore it through surveys and interviews. And they basically come up with the cultural and theological tools that white evangelicals have actually tends to reinforce segregation, mm. even though uh, their stated commitment is is toward racial reconciliation. And so it's a fascinating study of, of, about, you know, how ideas of um, individualism and um, personal responsibility and all these different things actually play into what keeps us separated by race. Uh, so that's a great quick read, and I think it's foundational for, for exploring these issues. And that's divided by faith. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So we'll we'll link to that book and to your blog posts in the show notes. So listeners, if you want to check those out, you can find those there. 
Um, okay. People who know me know that I normally like to ask quick and to the point questions. I don't like to wax <laughs> poetic, uh, but I feel like I need to set this one up just a little bit. Um, so just give me a sec as I try to, I, I wrote this out and ran it by some people and, and I think, uh, I think I understand what I'm trying to ask, but, um, yeah, I'm just going to run with it. Take um, your time. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, I really like what, what you and Tyler had to say about tone policing in your, um, in your, one of your latest episodes of your podcast. And I know that you desire to speak the truth in love and that people will be upset when you do. I do think there are folks at our church who have left, um, because of the ways that we've talked about racism, we've called it what it is. We've called it a sin. Um, and obviously what we saw in Charlottesville was a gut wrenching display of this, um, so it's crucial to, to say all of these things. And I think to say them from the pulpit, we've done that. Um, but also we've talked with minorities in our church who have wondered what we're going to do about it. So it's great that you guys keep talking about it. What are you actually going to do about it? Um, I interviewed John Bryson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's out of Memphis. Sure. Uh, he, he told me to start multi-ethnic with our church leadership, which we didn't do. So we're at a deficit there. Uh, I interviewed Mark DeMoz out of Little Rock. He said, um, figure out the one step that you can take towards seeing all tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping together in your particular context and just take that first step. Um, and I think a lot of it starts in the everyday, just confronting the racism you see around you, entering into contexts that are unfamiliar, uh, meeting people and listening to them. Um, so I say all of that to say, I know that the church that you attend is multi-ethnic. Um, can you tell us more about how that church formed and both the challenges that you faced and the encouraging things that you've seen from it? Sure. Um, so that was my church in Jackson. We recently moved back up to the Delta. And so now I'm in a predominantly white church. Um, okay. Again, this is not the first time I've been there. Um, <laughs> but yes, the, the church I was in is called Redeemer Church in Jackson, Mississippi. And I think it's a, it's a great uh, gospel-focused, biblically-centered, intentionally multi-ethnic church. And a lot of that is from the foundation in the DNA of the church. And so part of it was this was a predominantly white church um, back in, <clears throat> excuse me, back in the early 2000s. And there was a, a majority of the congregation that because the church was getting bigger, um, they wanted to, they wanted to move locations, which would have put the church into a predominantly white neighborhood. The one where it was located was um, more mixed and more African-American, blue collar, that kind of thing. So there was a remnant that wanted to stay in the neighborhood. And so they said, uh, you guys go ahead, go build the other church or start the other church um, in the in another part of the city. We're going to stay here and we're going to call a pastor, but we're going to make sure that he's African-American because of our community. Mm -hmm. And we want to serve our community as best we can. So that was the start of it and they and they got uh, a black pastor Mike Campbell uh, an incredible preacher of the word and a very very faithful pastor and and that was that was crucial but also the elders were uh, were, were a biracial mix of of godly men and so from the start that was kind of part of the culture of the church but it was also very deliberate so pastor Mike will tell you one of the first things he did when he got there was to sit down with the uh, Trinity hymnal, which is the Presbyterian hymnal, and with a uh, hymnal they used in, in black Baptist churches. Mm -hmm. And he went page by page and picked out the songs they had in common. And that became 
the the song list mm. that they had. Um, and now, you know, they've added on since then, but it was a very kind of intentional decision to, to be able in the worship and music to bridge divides and, and appeal to a lot of different folks. And so all of that, um, along with a thousand tiny decisions, uh, you know, one of the things they committed to was always having a, a person of color in, in the pulpit. You know, he, he may not always be preaching. But of the other folks who are helping with the service, there were always going to be people of color up front. So that if a visitor came, new member came, they would always see more than one group of people represented. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, lots of healthy multi-ethnic churches have done that. And the great thing about multi-ethnic churches, they're they're not cookie cutter. They're going to be different everywhere you go. Yeah. Uh, the demographic makeup of Denver is going to be way different than, than Jackson, than Santa Fe, you know. And so, you know, the endeavor is to serve your community, whoever that is and, and, and whatever they look like, mm-hmm. uh, whatever culture they come from. So I was just blessed to be part of that and be able to, to witness it and serve in a small way. I love that. How, how did the transition go? Was that a smooth transition for the church? Well, it was sort of like, uh, it was almost like a church plant situation. Okay, um, okay. They did have an opportunity to kind of start over, and it was less of a transition with all the same people. Okay. That's much, much harder. The bigger your church is, the harder and the slower it's going to be. And honestly, probably the, the, the more quote-unquote radical you're going to have to be mm-hmm. um, because you're trying to uproot some some habits and practices that you've had for a long time, and that's hard work. Yeah, yeah, okay. That makes sense. That's helpful. Um, okay. Let me ask you a, a two part question here and then, uh, and then we'll do some rapid fire questions and we'll wrap up so you can get back to your PhD. Um, <laughs> <Sounds good. laughs> so the, the two part question is this, uh, when an event like Charlottesville happens, uh, what do you think is the best way for a church to address it immediately? So, Churches have to address it. Um, that is simply the baseline, yes. right? Yes. Um, and it's got to be, at minimum, like a pastoral prayer in church on Sunday. I mean, from the pulpit, something something from up front, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a message, uh, an announcement, you know, before everything gets going. I don't know how you want to do it. Obviously, a sermon. Uh, would be appropriate in in certain cases, and so I say that because I know so many people of color who, after an event like Charlottesville or Ferguson or um, you know you name it, a kind of countless other similar events, mm. they're hurting, yeah, and then they're looking for what does the Lord have to say about this, and on a human level, they're asking, do people at my church care? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a minority in a predominantly white church. So it has to, has to, has to be addressed. And I would encourage any pastors or church leaders who are listening, you gotta take that first step. I mean, don't even say you want racial reconciliation or integration or diversity in your church if you're not willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the flock has you in such a position that you feel like you can't speak up about these things, that's a major issue. That needs to be addressed uh, on some level. And so you got to address it. Uh, but I think there's another step 
that's going to be really hard for majority white churches. And that step is to lead by following. Hmm. What I mean by that is predominantly white churches in a very sincere and noble desire to take action will initiate something. Well, that sort of perpetuates this notion that, you know, white Christians have to always lead the way mm. and always initiate and always be the voice speaking. And when the reality is, after these kinds of things like Charlottesville, black churches, Latino churches, Asian churches, they're thinking about it too. Yeah. And if we really want to be the body and honor one another, then why not in these instances follow the lead of the people who are most affected? Mm. And we're talking about white supremacy here. Black people know a little bit about that <laughs> yeah. historically, um, and the black church knows a lot about that. And so instead of just this knee-jerk reaction, we got to put a panel together, we got to make this event, reach out to black pastors in the area, uh, you know, black or people of color, church leaders, and say, hey, what are you all doing? Hmm. How can we help? Are you are you putting on an event? Can we support it financially? Can we come? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes that's that's all you need to do is show up. Yeah. So that's what I would encourage folks to do is you don't always have to be the one to come up with the with the now what. Mm-hmm. There are other folks doing that who who've been doing it for a long time and learn from them. Mm-hmm. That's really really helpful. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I I think our elders wondered, do we just abort ship on our current preaching schedule and just do a three-part series on uh, racism in the gospel? Um, and, and I think the plan is to do that here in the next few weeks. Um, but but longer term, I, I think uh, forming those partnerships with others in the city to, to hear what they're doing, to ask if we can join and be a part of that, I think that's, that's helpful. Do you have any other thoughts? Obviously, yeah. this is a... I mean, this is a long-term thing. This isn't something that we're going to fix in Denver tomorrow. Um, so, what are those those long-term steps that we can be taking as as we want as we desire to become more multi-ethnic? Yeah, I'll just do kind of rapid fire here as things come to mind. One of the things is for preachers: switch up your illustrations and applications. Okay. Probe um, minority communities, narrative stories. Mm for illustrations and application. They don't always have to come from either your own personal experience or sort of the, the usual suspects like, you know, a C.S. Lewis or, or whomever. <laughs> uh, there are black preachers and theologians all over uh, throughout history and in the present day. There are examples from uh, minority communities that, that can be helpful. And so that kind of a thing where it's not overt, you don't have to do a whole sermon on race but what you can do is be inclusive in your preaching hmm. and it's subtle, but it, but it softens up folks to, to be able to hear those stories and understand that other people's experiences have weight and count, mm-hmm. uh, for the, for the pastor. So that's one little thing. Another thing, which is simple, but it never gets old is financially support, um, minority ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of, 
a lot of good ones out there, like um, the Jude 3 project with uh, Lisa Fields is doing apologetics in the African-American context. It's a wonderful ministry that's just getting going. Obviously, ran and passed the mic. We, we uh, always can benefit from financial support, but find those organizations that are led by people of color doing what you think are good things and support those. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's but there are harder things. And I'm convinced that Sunday, we, we're not going to see diversity on Sunday unless we have diversity Monday through Saturday. Yeah. And that falls heavily on some very personal decisions, namely where we choose to live and where we choose to go to school or send our kids to school. Mm. If you want to be, if you want to, especially as a white person who's in the majority, so it's kind of harder to, to get interaction, meaningful interaction with uh, minorities, you're going to have to make some difficult choices, hmm. whether that means you move or perhaps you stay in a neighborhood where the demographics are, are changing. Uh, but where you live is, is going to give you a different set of concerns because your community is going to be different. Yeah. And that's going to help you think differently. And also schools are, are a huge um, area of socialization you know we started talking uh, talking about education uh at the top of the show and here we come again because whether you're the student or uh someone you know or your child is the student it's going to put you in a social network hmm. and if those networks are homogenous you can guarantee it, it, your life's going to be homogenous it's going to be much much harder for you to to interact with with people who are different hmm. and so the way i frame it is yeah, it seems radical. It almost seems out of the pale, like beyond what's reasonable. But if you think about a little girl named Ruby Bridges was six years old and her parents decided they wanted her to integrate a school in New Orleans. It was made into a movie. Uh, Norman Rockwell painted a picture of it. Those parents and that family made a massive sacrifice for their child to go to this all-white school where as soon as Ruby Bridges was enrolled, all the white parents pulled their kids out. Hmm. And she had to be on protection, armed protection, to go to school. She's six years old. She's still alive. Uh, if, if black parents and black families had to make those sacrifices for the sake of integration and equality, why wouldn't that fall on white families as well? Hmm. Um, in, a simil in, in very similar cases with residential segregation, there always had to be that black family that was a pioneer. There yeah. always had to be the, the, the family that would, you know, the tactics they resorted to to keep residential s segregation were just draconian. Mm. They would set up rotations of people to drive by a black person's house and honk the horn all through the night so that they couldn't, couldn't sleep. Uh, obviously, they would do drive-bys and shoot up the house, burn crosses. Um, they would they would they would leave trash on the lawn. But there always had to be that family that was willing to say that this principle is important enough that we're going to put our whole family in, get our whole family involved in this mission. And mm -hmm. I and I just think that the problem of racism and segregation is deep enough that we're not past those times, and that um, white families and white communities are going to have to think in those terms at some point. Amen. Amen. I love that. Um, and, uh, interestingly enough, Malcolm Gladwell did a recent podcast about the history of 
Brown versus Board of Education. Have you heard this? I did. Okay. Do you, it sounds. I like, didn't agree with. One. Oh, you don't so have you have thoughts on it. I do. Do you want to give them to me? So, I'm trying to recall. I, I, I listened to it when it first came out, so it's been a while. But I I, I had a problem with the framing. Okay. Um. He he quotes the the judges written decision on it yeah. and uh you know that's the decision where they said uh, segregation is inherently unequal and i think gladwell's basically as i recall making the point that the judge framed it in kind of interpersonal terms and didn't talk about the systemic structural aspects of segregation which then set school desegregation on a trajectory of not really dealing with the core issue uh, which is residential segregation, funding, those kinds of things. I I disagree with that because the entire decision was a, addressing a systemic issue. <laughs> it was telling all public schools, you have to allow African-Americans and people of color into any school, any yeah. public school. That is a systemic issue. And so I think there are other roots to the problem. I think it was a valuable exploration, uh, but... Malcolm Gladwell's from Canada. I don't know how much he has delved deeply into racial dynamics in the U.S. and especially in the South. So some of that, to me, came out. Sure, sure. I What was interesting to me was after the decision was handed down, you saw these schools, uh, a lot of them joining together, and then the white superintendent or white principal wouldn't take any of the black teachers from the schools that were joining. Do you remember that part? I do remember that. And so it seemed like he's, it, it felt like maybe that decision set us up for just more and more black students being taught by white teachers and black teachers losing their jobs, which yeah. is, is also tragic. His point seemed to be for a student to succeed, a teacher needs to value them and invest in them and see potential in them and then try to bring that out. I, I don't know. Did you feel any of that when you were teaching? Oh, it's so vital. Um, And uh, there's, I just can't make a strong enough argument for African Americans and other people of color to get in the classroom Mm -hmm. and get in front of kids. I was, when I was growing up, I didn't have a single African American teacher till I want to say junior year of high school, Hmm. uh, my typing teacher. And then I only had one African-American teacher throughout all my college career. I had zero African-American teachers in seminary. Um, and that makes a difference. I mean, obviously, wow. I got through it all. But especially as a younger kid, when you can look up front and see someone who looks like you, then you have a vision for what's possible for you. Hmm. And when you don't see that person, you start to make all these interesting associations like you start to associate authority and power with whiteness Hmm. and you start to think that white people not just in your classroom or your school but throughout all of society are the ones who are quote-unquote supposed to be in charge yeah and it doesn't just affect minorities it affects people in the majority too you start to believe it (laughs) (laughs) um and so it's just so vital to to have folks who not only look like you but have cultural touch points can identify and be empathetic uh, the reaction from students and parents 
for better or worse. It was just so different when, uh, you know, our school was 98% African American and it was just helpful, particularly on the front end to, to help build trust and disarm people. Now I say that and I immediately follow up and what people are looking for is people who love, love and care about them no matter what you look like. Yeah. And so I've seen some of the most effective teachers be completely for the culture, different race, different ethnicity, maybe even English as a second language. They become beloved by the kids and families because of the way they care for the kids. So it, it's not a deal breaker at all, but it, it is something to pay attention to and, and something I think that schools, particularly Christian schools, should be actively recruiting um, teachers of color. Yes. Yes. Makes sense. Um, okay, great. Let's, let's close out with a few rapid fires and then I'll get you out of here. Uh, first one is this, uh, favorite TV show, movie and or book that you've watched or read recently. <laughs> My go-to is the born identity. Okay. I, I love that whole trilogy of films. Nice. Uh, three books by African-American authors that everyone at our church should read. Yes. Um, Jesus of the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Um, the, there's two books by him. Uh, the Coming Race Wars by William Pinnell was a professor out of Fuller Seminary, still there. He's in his 80s now. And um, uh, it is John Perkins' autobiography, Let Justice Roll Down. Perfect. Um, iPhone or Android? iPhone, all the way. Good call. We're not really good friends if you don't have an iPhone. <laughs> Whenever I saw your text messages going blue, I, it just made my heart sing. I just want to I'm let you know. I'm telling you. There's, there's solidarity right there. <laughs> uh, best meal you've had recently? Ooh. Uh, buh, 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 buh. I, I love ribeye. That's okay. just what I do. So I, I grill a ribeye and uh, have a potato and I'm in seventh heaven right there. <laughs> medium rare? Medium? What do you do? Medium. Okay. I can respect that. Well done. I can't respect. <laughs> no way. No way. <laughs> Sacrily. Uh, let's see. Nerdiest thing that you're into right now? Something you're kind of embarrassed to tell me about? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a PhD student, so <laughs> everything I do is kind of nerdy. Um, I, I mean, that's it. I mean, I just, I read history books all day and I'm like intrigued by, you yeah. know, ooh, it was, it was intellectual history, and <laughs> urban history, and all these kinds of things that nobody cares about <laughs> until I talk about it. And then it sounds interesting. Right. My brother, the one that I mentioned, he's in Tulsa. He used to walk around in our backyard with a walking stick when he was like eight years old, dreaming up alternative history scenarios in his head. <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing any of that, are you? No, no, HBO's <laughs> trying to do that. Yeah, they are. That's They're true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, last one here. Uh, Tim Ferriss asked this question uh, on his podcast, so I like to steal it from him. He says, uh, if you could put a billboard anywhere in the world, where would you put it and what would it say? My goodness. 
right? I'm so terrible at these hypothetical questions. I'm so like <laughs> rooted in reality um, <laughs> to a fault. <laughs> Down south, every other billboard is just Jesus saves, which is funny. Um, or something about abortion. Bible. Or something about abortion, yes. Or Trump. Culture wars rage. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not witty enough, but I'll probably come up with something and like email or text you. <laughs> how, how about how about just you can't be a Christian and a white supremacist? Can we just put that in the delta? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would probably say something like you can talk about racism and systemic injustice and still be a Christian. That's the that's the blowback I get. Oh, dude, yes, yes. And if anybody's <laughs> listening out there, Nashville statement, please feel free to, to chime in at any point. Um, all right. That's just my, that's a little swab, subtweet via podcast there. I'm, I'm not going to, we don't have to touch that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Jamar, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I had fun. Let's definitely do this again. Okay. Sounds good, brother. All right, that'll do it for our interview with Jamar Tisby. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Feel free to write me at any time with thoughts, questions, or concerns. My email is james at parkchurchdenver.org. You can also find me on Twitter at James Lepine, L-E-P-I-N-E. And if you have a minute, please go into iTunes to rate and review us there. That will help other people find the show. So if you like what we're doing, that's an easy way to spread the word. Of course, you can always share it with your friends as well. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next month on the Park Church Podcast.